Well, good morning. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 48. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Some words may be a little different as we go along. But let's read this passage together. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts is his name. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead bronze, therefore I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you, so that you would not say, My idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard, look at all of this, and you... Will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago. And before today, you have not heard them, so that you will not say, Behold, I knew them. You have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago, your ear has not been open, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you could, and you have been called a rebel from birth. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise, I restrain it from you, in order to not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction." For mine own sake, and for my own sake, I will act. For now can my name be profaned. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I have called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. I think if you're reading an NIV, it says something about the Lord's ally. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon, and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him, I have brought him, and he will make his ways successful. Come near to me, listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river, 
and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he had led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Well, as I read and studied this passage to come to you today, there were several things that stood out in this passage for me that um, I'd like to bring to you today. The first is in verse 6. This statement, I proclaim to you new things from this time. That's a real attention getter. The Lord is saying there's new things that he's going to proclaim. Verse 11, when he says, My glory I will not give to another. I think if you're in the NIV it says, I will not yield my glory to another. And then in verse 14, the statement that in the NIV, the Lord's chosen ally will carry out his purpose against Babylon. And then finally, in verse 20, the decree to go forth from Babylon, to leave Babylon, and the fact that there is no peace for the wicked. My hope is that we can see this passage in its historical context to bring some life to it. And so we could understand it as a part of God's unfolding eternal plan of redemption and restoration. That we can figure out, what does this have to do with Advent? And finally, we might understand if it applies to us today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's clear from this passage that you clearly had some bones to pick with the audience that this was directed to. Lord, you speak of your faithfulness and the audience's lack of faithfulness to you. Lord, we are a people who sit here today worthy of the same chastisement from you. And yet, Lord, like this people, we aspire to be loyal to you. And Lord, despite their lack of faith, it's clear that you are a God of mercy and you are doing a powerful, merciful thing that will be to their benefit. And Lord, we acknowledge that you treat us the same today. So Lord, I pray that the words that I'm about to speak would be your words and that what every person in this room needs to hear will come from you and we will all be inspired by the Holy Spirit to go forth this week and do what you would call us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hopefully I'm going to be able to work the uh, short little PowerPoint that I have here. But it's clear to me that Isaiah is speaking to the Jewish exiles who were in captivity in Babylon. And if you remember, and how could you forget, our study of Ezekiel, 
Ezekiel was also talking to the people that were being held captive in Babylon. Although the audience that Ezekiel was speaking to was probably about 50 years uh, before this. So how did it come about that these people were held in captivity there, and where did they come from? I think understanding that will help bring some life to this passage. So to do that, we've got to go all the way back and do a brief, very brief history of the people of Israel. Going all the way back to Genesis 12, God called Abram and his wife, and he promised to make them a great nation and that he would bless them in order that through them all the people of the earth would be blessed. He in this great nation was blessed to be a blessing, as it tells us in Genesis 12:1 and following. Through Abraham and this people, God would restore the blessing of Genesis 1:28, which had been obliterated by the fall. This was God's plan of redemption and restoration from the very beginning. So with this nation, then, we have centuries of activities in their development. Slavery in Egypt, redemption from slavery and exodus from Egypt, 40 years of wandering in the desert, followed by re-entry to the promised land under Joshua, settlement of the land under the 12 tribes, lots of national memories that were preserved first through the oral tradition and then recorded in Torah, as we have just spent the last year studying. The establishment of a theocracy where God rules through judges, and then ultimately, because the people wanted it, a kingdom, ruled first by Saul, but then reaching its pinnacle of power and influence in the world under David and Solomon. Help me, Chuck. So imagine there was this map while Chuck gets it up there. And the map would show this extensive area that runs... ah, It would show this extensive area that runs... This entire area is the kingdom of Israel that existed under Solomon at the pinnacle of his reign. But along the way, they were being blessed to be a blessing to the nation, and God was constantly challenging them to remember his faithfulness. Because remembering was a way of providing hope in the face of adversity and affliction. And this sets the stage now for the next 400 years of activity. 931 is when Solomon is succeeded by his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam ignored his elder advisors and told the people that he was actually going to increase the heavy yoke that had been imposed upon them by his fathers, by his father. This caused, oops, this caused the northern ten tribes to revolt 
against Rehoboam, and they, in fact, recruited Jeroboam, who was one of Solomon's advisors, to be their king, and they established what became known as Israel, the northern kingdom. That northern kingdom quickly fell into apostasy, cast graven images, and worshipped outside of the precepts that God had established in Torah. Ultimately, God had it with them. And by 722, the Assyrian Empire, and you can see the Assyrian... Sorry, keep clicking the wrong thing. The Assyrian Empire exists up here in the north. The Assyrian Empire came down and basically conquered Israel. Now, the Assyrians had an interesting way of taking care of populations that they had conquered. They wanted to make sure that all of their conquered territories were pacified. And so what they did was they took a core group of the native uh, inhabitants, particularly the leaders and the ruling classes, and relocated them throughout other areas of the empire. And then they moved Assyrians in to make sure that the indigenous population was assimilated into the Assyrian culture and anything to do with their culture was obliterated. So when they conquered Israel, they forced the ten tribes to scatter throughout the Assyrian Empire. Over time, these Israelites disappear from our history permanently. They lost their national identity and their allegiance to Yahweh as they were absorbed into Assyrian cultures throughout disparate locations in the Assyrian Empire. In fact, they are often referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel. So with these ten tribes lost forever, where does that leave God and his plan for the ultimate redemption and restoration of the blessing of Genesis 128? Well, ultimately the Assyrians lost control to the Babylonian Empire. Now, the Babylonians basically exist down in this area here, which, by the way, is modern Iraq. The Assyrian Empire, what's left of it, is modern Syria. We'll see as we go on why there's so much conflict in these regions today. But ultimately, the Assyrians lost control to the Babylonian Empire as we got closer and closer to 600 B.C. From about 605 to 586, God used the Babylonians to now carry out his discipline on Judah because this southern kingdom, which was the peoples that were left for God to use to unfold his plan of restoration and redemption, they had fallen into apostasy and God punished them. We'll remember from Ezekiel the prophecies that Ezekiel had about the punishments that were going to come. In fact, by 586, all of Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. The altar had been completely obliterated. But there was a difference in the way that the Babylonians treated their conquered territories. They also 
took the leading people in the society and the, the um, uh, ruling classes and removed them, but they brought them to one place. And if we'll remember from our study of Ezekiel, Ezekiel was prophesying to the people that were living in the streets of Babylon under the captivity of the Babylonians. They were away from Jerusalem. He had pulled them away, but the Babylonians allowed them to stay together. And so in staying together, they were able to preserve their ethnic identity and their devotion to Yahweh. So this period is one of the most significant periods in Jewish history, and it's called the exile. You'll often hear uh, when you talk about the history of Israel, talk of whether it was pre-exilic or post-exilic Israel. So this then is the group that this is being written to. These people who were in captivity in Babylon. Let's look at the text again. Notice that in verse um, 1, when he says, hear this, and by the way, the word hear there is the same word that is used in Deuteronomy uh, 6. It means not only to physically hear, but to absorb and to ultimately obey. Uh, It's the word um, uh, Shema. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel and who come forth from the loins of Judah. So it's these people that are from the kingdom of Judah who are now sitting in captivity in Babylon that he is talking to. But he now has some stinging remarks for him, for them. What he says is, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel. In other words, who still practice their devotion, at least outwardly. But he says, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. So that there's something about their outward practice that is not becoming part of their inward transformation that has acts come out of it. And then he goes on to further um, talk about how um, they are trying to stay loyal, but they're really not cutting it. He uses words like um, how he knew they were obstinate. Their arm, their neck was um, an iron sinew and their forehead bronze. The point is God is not happy with what they are doing And he's really not happy with the situation because he's got this plan to redeem the creation and to restore the blessing. And these guys are in captivity in Babylon. How are they going to get that done? So that's when we get to this verse 6 where he says to them, and, and this I believe is the pivotal statement in this chapter, that I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. So that's got to give their attention because this is a God who has constantly told them, remember, these stories have been, uh, and his promises have been carried down through the ages, the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the, the Davidic covenant, 
the uh, covenant with um, Noah. All of these promises over the ages have been repeated and repeated. And now suddenly he says, I have new things to say to you. In fact, he says that these things um, uh, are created now and not long ago. And before today, you've not heard them. He says, in fact, I couldn't really tell you about these things before because your ears were not capable of hearing and understanding what I was saying. Remember in Ezekiel, we constantly heard, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, Their ears were not ready for these new things. So what are these new things and how might that apply to God's plan? Well, that's where we jump down. Um, I'm sorry, before we get there, to set the stage for this, God continues to chastise them for not being faithful in the light of his faithfulness. But he says in the end, in verse 11, my glory I will not give to another or share with another. His plan of redemption and restoration of the blessing is going to happen. And it's to his glory that that's going to happen. And God is not willing to share that with another. That brings us to the final point that I have on this little chart here. I believe, not only do I believe, I know that verses 6 and 7 are a reference to the Persian conquest of Babylon. The Persian Empire exists up in this area here to the east of Assyria, to the east and north of Babylon in its modern-day Iran. So while the Babylonians have taken over from the Assyrians, now the Persians under Cyrus come in and take over for the Babylonians. And this is in 539 that Cyrus the Great leads the Persians to take over the Babylonian Empire. God's referring, when he refers to his ally there, it's Cyrus the Great that he is referring to. And his purpose is not simply to make sure that Cyrus conquers Babylonia. That is a part of his purpose. But it's more importantly the change in how the Persians under Cyrus will govern. And if you'd flip over in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, let me read um, Ezra 1, verses 1 through 3. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, by the way, Jeremiah had prophesied that there would be a ruler that would restore the people to the land. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, 
Whoever there is among you to all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So not only does Cyrus conquer the Babylonian Empire and now make it the Persian Empire, but he goes one step further in how he treats the people and moved by the Spirit of God, he sends a decree out that says, you can return. Not only can you return, but I'm returning you because the house of your Lord needs to be rebuilt. And so if you know any of your history from Ezra and Nehemiah, initially Ezra leads a band of people who go back and they first rebuild the altar so that worship can be reestablished. Then they begin to work on the temple and then ultimately Nehemiah comes to strengthen and rebuild the walls of the city so that the city of Jerusalem could be restored. So, and further, when we read in Ezra, Cyrus also restored to the Jewish people all of the implements of worship, the very valuable implements of silver and gold that Nebuchadnezzar had removed from the temple and taken to Babylon. See, God needs to reestablish Jerusalem and the temple because they're vital instruments in his plan to restore the blessing to all nations through his chosen people. He's going to move a mighty world leader to enable it, but he's also going to be using these incredibly flawed people. He spent most of this part of this prophecy, this poetry in uh, Isaiah, talking about the flaws in their character, that they're not following God in truth and righteousness, that they're stiff-necked, that they're uh, treacherous. But he is going to use them because they still are devoted to Yahweh. So that's why he calls them to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem, to reestablish the altar, to rebuild the temple, and to ultimately resurrect the walls of the city. Now, what does this have to do with Advent? Well, first of all, God promised new things, plural here. And the one thing in this chapter 48 that we heard about that was new was that he was going to partner with a Gentile world leader to advance his plan of restoration by conquering Babylon. But I think in the ensuing weeks, we'll hear more about new things about the Messiah and the impending coming of Messiah as we have this time of Advent. As the children pointed out in their readings, it was so appropriate. Advent is a time of waiting and anticipation. And hearing the words that I will now tell you of new things brings about a spirit of anticipation. So, how can we apply this to us? I mean, this is a good historical lesson. Now we understand who he's prophesying to, what their circumstances were. It's sends uh, or gives a little more perspective to these words. But I think the application for us is that he can and do, will do mighty works with flawed people. 
I think if we're honest with ourselves, and certainly I can tell you as I studied this, many of the things that he had to say about these people that were captive in uh, Babylon would apply to me, too. There's a lot that I do outwardly, but I'm not always inwardly being transformed and having that be the, the reasons for my works. There are times when I'm stiff-necked and bronze-foreheaded um, where God can't get through to me. We fit the characteristics of these people, but yet God used them. So are there new things, perhaps, that during this season of Advent that God would be calling us to? It doesn't have to be great things. We heard um, last week about works that are being done in our body um, um, to, to help people who are trying to minister to international people and to help people who are in difficult situations in shelters, that there are things that we can do uh, what are things that we are being called to do, flawed as we are in this season of Advent, to do? Let's pray. Father, we just think of your constant reminder for us to remember, to remember the acts of faithfulness. Certainly the nation of Israel had national memories that they were constantly being called, but all of us in our lives have memories of your faithfulness to us, um, your faithfulness in times of affliction, in times of doubt, in times of concern. So, Lord, help us to remember. Help us to remember those times when you have cared for us to give us confidence to walk forth in uncertainties today. And, Lord... Help us to listen to for you, to what call you would have to use us as flawed people in your unending eternal plan of restoration of the blessing of Genesis 128. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.